Welcome to the Grove Church Podcast and thegrovekc.com. Our mission as a church is to encourage people to discover true treasure in Jesus Christ. We hope you find today's teaching helpful and encouraging. Thanks for joining us. Well, again, good morning. I want to welcome you. My name is Christian. If we haven't met, I am the lead pastor here. And uh, we're continuing this series called Major or Minor Prophets, Major Mission. And the prophets we're looking at are minor only from the standpoint that the writings that are attributed to them uh, are shorter. But what, what these prophets did, what is known as the Twelve, uh, what each of them does in, in a certain way is raise questions that though they were raising these questions thousands of years ago, have very much, very real application and implications for us today. And so today the question we turn to is, what does God want? And as I ask that question, I want to ask you another question, right? You think of that question, what does God want? I want to ask you to think about, how did you hear that question? Just first response, how did that question come across to you? Now, maybe I did something in the way I asked it that it it skewed it a certain way, this way or that way. But I want you to think about, as you're thinking about your own reaction, think about how we use that question with one another. There's different ways. There's a difference between, say, answering the phone and growling, what do you want? That's one way that I could ask the question, what do you want? That's a difference. There's a difference in terms of that question if I am pulling uh, myself or, or myself plus others into the Andes Custer drive through line and I turn back and invite, what do you want? I mean some different things there in terms of how I ask that question. And you're going to hear something different in terms of how I'm asking that question. And so how do we respond to this idea of what does God want? Do we think of the question of what God wants as what does God want from us? That's one way you could hear it. What does God want from me? And when we do that, when we hear that question that way, I think then what our minds go to is this list of don'ts and do's that may seem arbitrary, a list that may seem irrelevant. Yeah, do's and don'ts that don't really have that much application to the way life really goes. Or perhaps just a list of do's and don'ts that seem unattainable. That's nice, God, but I... I, I don't think anybody can actually live that way. Or maybe you hear this idea of what does God want from us, and it makes you think of a kind of character, right? the character that a person would have, that sounds noble. You're like, well, yeah, it sounds noble to be that kind of person, but that kind of person is reserved for someone else. It's this, God has this standard of character, and you think, and that, that's just for somebody else. I'm sure there are people that actually do this, but I don't know them, or, or if I do know them, they're just on some other plane than I think I could ever be. So maybe that's how you heard that question. What does God want from me? But let me ask you this. Have you ever thought of that question, or are you thinking of that question in terms of what does God want for us? What does God want for me? I think our, our skew, what, what we tend to do is go towards, what does God want from me? And it's not a bad way to think of that question, but it's just not enough. And so today what we're going to do is turn to this sixth minor prophet who raises the question for us. His name's Micah. And what he wants to do for us is, is to hear that question and have our minds blend both ideas. 
I think the big idea here, what Micah wants us to know and understand is that what God wants from us is what is good for us. What God wants from us is what is good for us. You have to hear both speakers. You have to hear that question in stereo and understand it from both angles. And so what God wants from us is what, God, what is good for us. And, and whether you've ever read the book of Micah before or not, it's likely that you've encountered at least two verses from Micah's writing. Okay, here's my guess is you've heard at least two verses from the book of Micah. The first one is this, Micah 5.2. Micah 5.2, Bethlehem Ephrathah, you are small among the clans of Judah. One will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity, from ancient times. The likelihood is maybe you've only even heard the very first part of Micah 5.2. And we're about to enter into the season where we tend to hear this. You've probably heard that what is a prophecy, a prediction that Jesus would be born in this backwoods town of Bethlehem. That's what we're told here in Micah, and we see that come true when Jesus is born in Bethlehem. But the other verse that you've likely heard from Micah 6.8 is, is, is this. Micah 6.8, I mean, so from Micah is Micah 6.8. And it says this, Mankind... He has told each of you what is good and what it is, what is, and what it is the Lord requires of you to act justly, to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with your God. Now, maybe you've heard it the way I learned that initially, right? To, uh, to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. But, but most of us, if we spend any time around the Bible or any kind of Christian thing, you've probably come across this verse. If you haven't, that's okay. Just the likelihood is we, we've encountered this before. And what I want to do today is let this verse provide a lens through which we can understand all of Micah's prophecy. And so as we do that, uh, I first want to give you just a little introduction, a little background on what's going on in the book of Micah. So let's turn back. We're going to go back to Micah 6, um, Micah chapter 1, verse 1, where we're introduced to Micah's prophecy. This is the word of the Lord that came to Micah, the Morishite, what he saw regarding Samaria and Jerusalem in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So again, first we're introduced to this man, Micah. And Micah's name, as we've been looking at with all the prophets, Micah's name means, who is like Yahweh? Who is like God? And Micah was a contemporary of Hosea and Isaiah and Amos. So we've already looked at Hosea and Amos, they're a part of this 12, these minor prophets, and we've, we've looked into their writings. Um, and Micah prophesied around the time of 740 B.C. It says that he uh, speaks regarding Samaria and Jerusalem. These are two capital cities of, of Israel and Judah. So this split kingdom, and you've got Israel in the south and Judah in the north, and so we've got these two, uh, the, these two cities that are being spoken of here. I think I got that backwards, Judah in the north and Israel in the south. And so that's where Micah is speaking, He's speaking to both of them, this divided kingdom. And in what is a dizzying collection, I'll say dizzying because it's going to go back and forth. If you're not careful, you get confused reading Micah because you're like, wait, we were just talking about this. Now we're talking about this. What's going on? First it was happy, now it's sad. And it can be dizzying, so you've got to kind of keep track of what's going on. But in this dizzying collection of oracles, Micah is called to represent the judge. God is, is seen as the judge here. In fact, Micah chapter 5, I'm sorry, chapter 6, God brings a lawsuit against the people of Judah. 
And it's, it's written in such a way that there's this courtroom presentation. So Micah is representing the judge, and he's condemning the sin of both Israel and Judah. This is how he describes his ministry in Micah 3.8. He says, As for me, however, I am filled with power by the Spirit of the Lord, with justice and courage, to proclaim to Jacob his rebellion and to Israel his sin. So that's what he's come to do. He's come to say, look, Israel, Judah, you guys are in the wrong here. You've been judged to be in the wrong. Your rebellion, your sin is not going to be tolerated. And so he comes to do that. And in fact, there's this really interesting, I wanted to share with you, this really interesting poetic representation of what's gone on throughout this city, some various cities in this region. And when you read it uh, in the way our modern translations provide it, you, you don't see sort of the, the poetry and the, the wordplay that's happening here. And you can read it and just go, okay, yeah, some different cities, they've got some problems. You, but you turn to Micah 1, verses 10 through 16, and he's, he's running through this list of all these problems that have been going on there in various cities. And for, I mean, he's, he's now deceased, but author and pastor for many, many years, Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase of the Bible, this, this huge uh, project that Eugene Peterson did over many years, the message, he really gets at the heart of what's going on here. So I want you to hear Micah's uh, judgment, the, the judgment that he is speaking on behalf of God here in Micah chapter 1. He says, don't gossip about this in Telltown. Don't waste your tears. In Dustville, roll in the dust. In Alarm Town, the alarm is sounded. I'll just pause here. Each of these cities, this is what their, their towns mean. And so there's this, this thing that God is doing is saying, look, you have this thing that you hang your hat on, and the very thing that you and your arrogance think is something to, to be proud of is going to be a means by which you are brought down. So he goes on. He says, the citizens of Exitburg will never get out, of, get out alive. Lament, last stand city, there's nothing in you left standing. The villagers of Bittertown wait in vain for sweet peace. Harsh judgment has come from God and entered Peace City. All you who live in Chariotville, get in your chariots for flight. You led the daughter of Zion into trusting not God, but chariots. Similar sins in Israel also got their start in you. Go ahead and give your goodbye gifts to Goodbyeville. Mirage Town beckoned but disappointed Israel's kings. Inheritance City has lost its inheritance. Glory Town has seen its last of glory. Shave your heads in mourning over the loss of your precious towns. Go bald as a goose egg. They've gone into exile and aren't coming back. So it's this, it's this satire, it's this little bit of humor, but it's meant to help show the harsh reality of what is to come in judgment on these towns. That, and, and they are representative of these entire regions of Israel and Judah. And so, on the one hand, Micah has been called to bring this message of judgment, but on the other, the one, he wants us to see that the one who is judge is also shepherd. And so he calls Micah to lay out a grand promise of hope. And here we find it in chapter 2, verses 12 to 13. Early on, we get this glimpse of hope. He says, I will indeed gather all of you, Jacob. I will collect the remnant of Israel. I will bring them together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in the middle of its pasture. It will be noisy with people. One who breaks open the way will advance before them. They will break out, pass through the city gate, and leave by it. Their king will pass through before them, the Lord as their leader. So here you have the judge is also shepherd. 
And he's promising that there will come a time when despite their rebellion, despite their sin, they will be led forward by their shepherd. This remnant, those who will, who will trust the Lord, will be led by him into this future hope. And so that's this big picture. This is what, what Mike has come to do. And, and you'll recognize, we've been at this for a number of weeks, and you'll recognize, not that different than some of the other messages that, that the prophets bring. Now, maybe the audience is slightly different. Maybe the, the nature of what's going on is slightly different. So I want to help you see this before, again, we get into the heart of what does God want? is to ask, well, why is God upset with them? Well, all we've seen is that they've got problems, but we don't really know why is God so upset with Israel and Judah. So just a, a few things here, just three things. One, he is judging them because of their land grabbing. Here, here's what's going on. Micah chapter 2, the very beginning. Here's how the, the message comes. It says, Woe to those who dream up wickedness and prepare evil plans on their beds. At morning light, they accomplish it because the power is in their hands. In other words, there's this group who is sneaking around at night. They're, they're doing these deceitful things in the dark. It says, what are they doing? Well, it says they covet fields and seize them. They also take houses. They deprive a man of his home, a person of his inheritance. Therefore, the Lord says, I am now planning a disaster against this nation. You cannot free your necks from it. Then you will not walk so proudly because it will be an evil time. In that day, one will take up a taunt against you and lament mournfully, saying, We are totally ruined. He measures out the allotted land of my people, how he removes it from me. He allots our fields to traitors. Therefore, there will be no one in the assembly of the Lord to divide the land by casting lots. It's important to recognize that for God's people in this time, and even today, I think we recognize this for some, but, but the land was, was everything. This was, this was this key part of God's promise to his people is, I'm not just going to, I will be with you, you will be my people, but you will be my people in my place. And he's brought them into this promised land. And he gave them very clear instructions for how they were to operate in that land and who was to have what land. They had rights and responsibilities related to the land. And God says, you've abused this. And so therefore, I, I, just as easily as I gave it to you, I can take it away. And in fact, he had been very clear on this. I want you to get a little bit of, of the warning that had gone on. Deuteronomy chapter 19, as God is forming his people and giving them these instructions for how they are to live as his people in his place, he says this, Do not move your neighbor's boundary marker. Established at the start in the inheritance, you will receive in the land your God is giving you to possess. He says, don't, I'm setting out these boundaries. Don't move it. He says it like this. It's told in the book of Proverbs. Don't move an ancient boundary marker and don't encroach on the fields of the fatherless for their Redeemer is strong and he will champion their cause against you. He says, look, I've laid out these boundaries. You respect the boundaries. Understand this is not meant to be a land grab. We don't get to just exploit one another and just try to get more, more, and more. God has laid things out in such a way to help bring about the kind of community that he wants. But that's what's being abused. They're, they're doing, they're defying this very thing. And what's going to happen? Well, just like it says in Proverbs, God will oppose them. God will champion the cause of those who have been exploited in this regard. So that's the first thing. This is, there's this land grab going on. The second thing going on is dishonest scales. Micah 6, 1, or 6.11. This is what he says to them. He, he, and part of this, this judgment, he says, can I excuse wicked scales or bags of deceptive weights? 
what's happened is in their commerce, there's a way to know, okay, well, how much am I getting, right? It's this, this trade economy. You say, okay, well, if a sheep is worth this much, you know, of this precious metal, then I got to make sure I have the right amount of that precious metal. But if my scales tip the balances in my favor, then I'm getting more than I should have gotten. It's, it's a way of cheating one another. And that's what he's accusing them of. This is what they're doing, is they're cheating one another. Again, there was very clear warnings against this. Their community was to be different. Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 25, he tells them specifically, do not have deferring weights in your bag, one heavy and one light. Do not have deferring dry measures in your house, a larger and a smaller. You must have a full and honest weight, a full and honest dry measure so that you may live long in the land your Lord, the Lord your God is giving you. For everyone who does such things and acts unfairly is detestable to the Lord your God. I mean, you remember watching cartoons where it's like, you know, there's the, the barbell and the, the cartoon character comes to lift the barbell and it's like, ah, oh, it's so, so heavy. And then somebody else comes over and they, they lift the, the barbell and they just pick it up with one hand. Why? Because they both say, you know, 100, grand, 100 pounds or whatever on them. But one is actually filled with precious metal. The other one is, is hollow. It's, it's not what it says it is. There's this deception, and that's what's going on in their economy. And so God says, look, no, this kind, of, this, this kind of unfair treatment where you're cheating one another, just trying to get by on one another, that kind of progress in your economics in your community is not okay. This is the kind of thing we see in predatory lending in our own time. I mean, this kind of cheating of, of trying to, to scheme and get by and get more for myself at the expense of somebody else, it's not how God's community was supposed to operate. And so he says in Proverbs, again, deferring weights are detestable to the Lord and dishonest scales are unfair. God looks at this and says, nah, he's turning up his nose at this kind of operation in their community. And, and what's important to understand is He's especially, this is the third thing that he's really getting after them, is he's especially holding the leaders of Israel and Judah accountable. The leaders are held accountable because the leaders, the prophets and the priests and the rulers, they're leading the way in this corruption. So this isn't just a few bad apples who are ruining it for everybody else. This is leaders that are pro promoting this kind of unjust, cheating way of life. And it's causing the entire community to fall apart. And it's put all of them in, in God's crosshairs, rightfully in God's crosshairs. And so it's important to understand Micah is not simply speaking into a good situation just gone wrong. Okay, God, what Micah's doing, okay, he's not just looking and saying, well, you know, there was, there was just this thing that was supposed to happen and it just didn't go quite right, so you know, we just got to come in and clean this up. Micah's got a much bigger picture in, light, in mind. He's speaking in light of a story. You see, you, you got to go back and understand what's the story of God's people. Well, God's people had been created. They'd been created to know him and to, to craft a certain kind of community, but then they'd fallen. They've rebe they'd rebelled against him. And what had God done? Well, he said, you know what? I'm not going to let your fall, your rebellion, be the final word. And so then he had rescued them. And we see this especially, this, this key moment in the, the history of God's people is the exodus. They had fallen into slavery in the land of Egypt, and God comes and he delivers them out of this unjust, tyrannical, demonic system. 
He rescues them. And this is, and what God's doing is he's, he's helping the people of God understand the story that, that he's crafting, that they're a part of. But he, he wants them to see they've been rescued into a, to enjoy a glorious future. And his plan would not be undone. That's what Micah wants us to see. That plan is not going to be undone. God will not allow for even his people's rebellion to undo the plan that he's had from the very get-go. And so when we read Micah 6.8, we're not reading simply a list. This is not three simple steps to a better today. And we make a mistake if we try to boil it down into, into simply that. 6, 8, Micah 6.8 is a vision. It's a vision of God's character, and it's a vision of the perfect community that God is creating in order to reflect his goodness. We need to understand it that way. And that then casts light on all that Micah is, is railing against here in the life of Israel and Judah. And it's what he's really railing against in our own lives and communities. And so what God wants is this certain kind of community. And, and what kind of community is it? It's a community in which, first off, God wants us to uphold right and rebuke wrong. It's a community in which right is upheld and wrong is rebuked. So he says at the beginning, Micah 6.8, what does the Lord require? To act justly or to do justice. To do justice. And to, to get in fully into all that the Bible means when it speaks of justice would, would take us a lot more time than we have. But I'm going to try to hit at the, the core of this. I want you to see the contrast. There's a, a clear connection and there's a contrast with justice and rightness and then wickedness. So Proverbs 29, 27 says, An unjust person is detestable to the righteous. So here's, you got righteous and unjust pit against each other, which is to say that justice has everything to do with rightness or righteousness. And it, says, it goes on and says, one whose way is upright is detestable to the wicked. When you stay upright, when you stay according to the standard that God has laid out, those who want to create their own standard, who want to bend the standard around their will and God's ways around their ways, that is wicked. And that stands in contrast to what is just. And what, when we talk justice, we have in mind that there is a right standard, and we have in mind that that right standard then needs to be applied specifically in our relationships, in the way that we treat other people. We need to do what is right in God's sight, but that, that rightness then plays out in the way we treat others, in the way the communities that we form how people are treated within those communities. So what God has said is good should be what we pursue. And where we got, find God's ways violated without concern, we have a responsibility to do something about it. And, and here's again where we could, we could go off in a lot of places. This touches on a lot of things. And a lot of things that right now we're especially asking questions, right? Because this idea of justice, it gets thrown around and used in a lot of ways. And some of them are appropriate, and others of them are just an exploitation for selfish gain. What I want us to do, though, is not, not treat justice as if it's this thing out here that other people can talk about and figure out and deal with, and not realize, wait, it's this thing that's meant to show up in the way we treat one another in our homes, in our church, in all the spheres of influence that we have, where we actually have something that we can 
can do. Well, let's, not, let's not put it way out there to the things that maybe someday we'll have some kind of influence and impact on, but let's talk about it in terms of the things we actually do have influence and impact on right now. And, and this is where we find something very helpful in terms of understanding our responsibility to uphold what's right and rebuke what's wrong. 1 Corinthians 5, in writing to a church, the Apostle Paul says this, Actually, I wrote to you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister and is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or verbally abusive, a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. For what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? Don't you judge those who are inside? God judges outsiders. Remove the evil person from among you. Notice what's going on here. God, God is saying through the Apostle Paul to us very clearly, if you claim to be my people, and that's something you're choosing to do. If you choose to make claim that you are my child, that you know me and you're seeking to walk with me, if you do that and then at the same time you take my standard and you go off and you violate it and you have no concern for the fact that you violate it, in fact you try to reconfirm it and reconform it into your own image and say that it's now my standard, if you abuse and change and, and do all that to my standard, you are outside the bounds of what my people are supposed to do. And so he then tells us, those who would seek to honor that standard, however feebly we do it, however clumsily we maintain that standard, he still tells us as his people. And he's talking in this, in this context, he's talking to a church that doesn't do this really well. They've got all kinds of problems of their own. But he still holds them responsible and says, you're the saints of God. You are God's people. And so, you have a responsibility. If there's somebody claiming to be a Christ follower who has no regard for Christ's ways, that needs to be called out. It needs to be dealt with. And, and we might look at this and glom on, right? Culturally, we might glom on to sexually immoral, drunkard, and go, oh yeah, there's Christians. They're always concerned about who's doing what with their body or who's doing what with that substance or whatever. That's all they can think about. No, no, no. No, God's standard is far more reaching than that. We definitely have to, we will definitely think about those things. Not because we just think it's fun to talk about those things. It's a lot easier to get by these days, to be really loose on the, that, the standards related to those two issues. But notice, greedy, idolater, verbally abusive, swindler, those things are just as much in the wrong. And we as God's people are, are to be held accountable for holding each other accountable, that this is God's right standard. Now, if you're not a part of the community, if you're, if you're, if you're not a Christian, you don't lay claim to Christ and the, the goodness of knowing him, then fine. That's where we say, look, we'll let God deal with that. What we want you to know is that there is a better standard. We want you to know why this is God's standard. We want you to understand who Jesus is and what he's done related to this standard. But our concern is going to be for doing justice with one another. And so some will say, in answer to that, well, so do we become the righteousness police, right? Is that, is that what you're saying? We're just supposed to go around being the, the righteousness police and, you know, all just with our little, you know, we have images of like, maybe I just have images of, you know, British bobbies, you know, a little hat and a whistle and, you know, we're ready to pounce and, and hit each other with this thing. Well, my answer to that is if we mean that running around crying foul, if, we, if that's the image we have, running around, crying foul on everything we see, hassling people who haven't really done anything wrong, or imposing arbitrary and harsh penalties, 
that are of our own making, if that's what we mean when we say being the rightness police or the righteousness police, then we have two problems with that. One, we misunderstand both justice, that's the first thing, we misunderstand justice, and we misunderstand policing. Right? We, if that's the image that we're conjuring, we've done a dis- disservice to the real idea of justice and we've done a disservice to the real idea of the police. Right? Which, again, cultural moment. This misunderstanding of who are these people? What should they be doing? And sometimes it's a misunderstanding because things have been abused. Justice has not been done. But that doesn't mean we, we just redefine this. If we understand it properly, then I would say, yeah. On, on some level, we are righteousness police with one another. If we mean seeking to maintain God-appointed order and do what is good for both many and the one, then police is an acceptable role that we play in our families, churches, and spheres of influence. You, you can talk about it that way. Now, maybe not my favorite way of talking about it, but, but sure. We, we do have a role that is like this. Maybe a better way to think about it is you know, we, what we say here is everybody has a whistle. We can all call foul on one another, recognizing that, that we're all going to have times where we, we step out of bounds. But by claiming to be Christ's people, what we're saying is, I don't want to be out of bounds. I just know that sometimes it happens. And so I need other people to help me walk in God's ways, to do what is just and right. And so this, in 1 Corinthians 5 and a number of other passages, they help form the basis for what we, what we call hard attitude number three that we give and receive scriptural correction. What's really important here, though, and, and this is where, again, you want to use the police analogy. If you're a police officer, you have to make judgments. You have to make decisions about what you're seeing, what's going on. But if you make those decisions and you make those judgments without asking questions, the Bible says, and experience will show, then you're a fool. And very often, this is the other thing that we do, is, and I've been guilty of it as anybody, is we foolishly make our decisions about things without really getting the facts, without really understanding what's going on. And so the way that, that this can be really good in a community and not manipulative is if we ask the questions. Hey, this is what I'm seeing. Is that, is that accurate? Do you think that, is that a fair representation? Did I miss something? Is there something else going on? Which gets us to the next thing. The second aspect of God's vision for his people, which is laid out in Micah. The second thing is that God wants us to promote restoration. We are to uphold what is good. We are to rebuke what is wrong, but we are to do it in a way that promotes restoration. That's the second part here, that we would love faithfulness or love mercy. It's this idea of faithful love, and it has a mercy edge. It's an ongoing kind of edge. But it has this idea that I'm trying to, to love somebody in such a way that it has a long-term good. It has their long-term good in mind. And so this is why Jesus comes and he, he deals so harshly, so strongly with the people who, who think they are getting that first part right, doing just, justly, acting justly. They think they're getting that right, but they're missing this second part. And so he says, in Matthew 23, 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You pay a tenth of mint, dill, and cumin, and yet you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These things should have been done without neglecting the others. Now again, he mentions, all, he mentions both of those, justice, mercy, faithfulness. 
Now, they think they're doing what's, what's right. But again, they've even misunderstood rightness. He says, it's fine that you're, you're, doing, you're doing these steps. You're taking the, doing the things you think you should do. You're, you're acknowledging you know, that God is the owner of things. You're, you're trying to represent yourselves as, as you know, very religious and you, you get this stewardship thing. Fine, but you're missing the bigger picture. These things should have been done without neglecting the others. There needs to be a, a, a way in which you're living and living out the rightness, but it's moving people towards something better, not just condemning them. And so we're told in James 2, speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has not shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What it's not saying, so this, this can get confusing, a lot of words used multiple times, but, but essentially what's being said here is if you are in Christ, you've been given freedom. But it's not a freedom to abandon God's ways, it's a freedom to live out God's ways. And so live that out. But if you are making judgments of others and seeing them not in light of the mercy that you've been shown in Christ, then you yourself have never, you're not really going to experience the mercy that maybe even you're claiming to have have experienced. Because that kind of mercy produces more mercy. See, mercy is not, it's standing not in contrast as if don't judge, just show mercy. It's saying, no, no, mercy is triumphing over judgment. It's the end of the judgment. It's where judgment is supposed to lead us, is towards mercy. And so what does this look like? Just big picture, these two pieces. So uphold what's right, rebuke what's wrong, promote restoration. Promote not just saying, oh, you've missed it, sorry, got to deal with that, but instead say, okay, you missed it, now how do we get you back on track? That's what mercy does. That's, that's the fullness of justice. What does this look like? Well, it means when we start to talk about justice, that in our communities, exploiters are unsafe. If you're going to exploit others, if you're going to try to take advantage of those who are vulnerable for some reason, you are not going to be safe in this community. What it also means is that those who are exploited are safe. But if we're going to have a mercy edge here, then what that means is that both have some hope of a better future. Now hear me here. It doesn't mean that there aren't long-term consequences for egregious acts. But as God's people, when we think of justice, we, we need to think in terms of where does that justice go? It should go towards helping for the future moving towards restoration. Now, there will some who, what that means is the only way to, pr- pr- to see that restoration is done on this larger scale is that, again, there are long-term consequences. What I'm not saying is, well, just let all those egregious criminals, all, that, all the, the horrible things that they've done, just, just let them, I'm sure if you just are nice to them, they'll, they'll, they'll be nice right back to you. No, <laughs> don't, don't. Again, these are complex issues. But from our standpoint as God's people, know that what justice should do is move towards restoration. Really helpful one day when I read something that, that explained grace like this. We tend to think of grace, you know, give me grace. What do we mean? We mean, well, take away the standard. I was supposed to do something, I didn't do something, so now let's just act like I, I never had to do it. Let's just remove the standard. Unfortunately, that's not 
I mean, fortunately, in a, in a really good way, that's not the biblical picture of grace. It's not the picture of justice and mercy that we're seeing here. See, what grace is, biblical grace is, is not removing the standard. No, biblical grace maintains the standard, but then helps somebody meet the standard. And this is what we have in Christ. It's not God going, you know, that stand, I, you know I've been kind of, I've been just a stickler for a long time. I, I really need to lighten up. Sorry. I'm, I'm getting it figured out. Don't, don't worry about it. No big deal. I, I know I really took it to the Israelites and the Judeans, you know, back in Micah's day, but, you know, I, I'm, I'm getting better. God doesn't remove the standard. No, God's standard is right. What God does is says, you know what? You need help. So I'm going to make a way for you to meet the standard. And that's what we're doing when we seek to live out justice and mercy. We're not changing the standard. We're saying, how do we, as a community, help one another live out the standard, God's good standard, that he has for us? So before we, we consider the final thing that God wants, I want you to consider this. Proverbs 19.11 says this, A person's insight gives him patience, and his virtue is to overlook an offense. Now, you catch it? I mean, if you're paying attention here, I've just said something that is confusing. He just said, wait, we've got to uphold the standard, uphold what's right, rebuke what's wrong. And here the Bible just said, overlook an offense. So which is it? What's going on? It's important for us to, to recognize this. There, there's, there's a tension, but there's not, there's not competition here. And the tension here is to recognize that there are certain things that may be an offense towards me, but that because I have in mind restoration, because I have in mind relationships, I can say, you know what? I'm going to let that go. It doesn't have to be dealt with here. I will absorb. Again, I'm not changing the standard, but instead I will absorb the price of that offense. Sometimes we can do that. And then sometimes we really shouldn't. And therein lies the rub, right, of, well, when do we do which? Which is to say, this is really hard. In, in fact, doing justice and loving mercy both properly, I would say, is actually impossible on our own. And so that leads us to the third thing. God wants us the vision he has of his community is to demonstrate dependence upon him. God wants us to demonstrate dependence upon him. The end of Micah 6, 8, what does God want? What does he require of you? To walk humbly with your God. To walk humbly with your God. There's this humble recognition, like we said earlier, that I don't necessarily always know God's standard as well as I should. We get into trouble when we think we are the ultimate arbiters of God's standard. The facts are, we're learning. We're figuring it out. There are some things God has said very clearly that we, we can hold on to. That's why Paul can write very clearly, 1 Corinthians 5, that look, these things are out of bounds. And, and we can look at those things and say, these are out of bounds. But understanding how to operate like this requires a humility that and I'm, I myself am growing and learning. God is a perfect judge. I am not. 
So there's a humility that comes there, but there's also this humility. Part of the, the humility is this recognition that without God, we, we can't really do anything that he's asked us to do. So Jesus tells us, John 15, 5, I'm the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. Now Jesus isn't saying, look, unless you get up and you know, pray and read your Bible, you're not going to be able to brush your teeth, you're not going to be able to eat your breakfast. You're not gonna, he's not. What he's saying is, you want to live out the ways that I've called you to? You want to be fruitful? The kind of life, this vision of a, a community, of a, a life that I've, I've called you to, if you want that to take place, you can't do it without me. You don't get, I, I don't just save you and then you go off and you figure it all out by yourself. No, you, you've got to be with me, walking with me, connected to me. God wants, he's creating this community where we demonstrate what it's like to depend upon him. I want you to see a picture. This is a guy named Tom Whitaker. Now you'll notice something at least present because something is missing, right? There's Tom, and you'll notice he has a prosthetic on his right foot. He has most of his lower leg, but he had an accident, had to have his foot amputated. Tom Whitaker, back in 1998, became the first disabled ascent of Mount Everest. So the, the first person, disabled person, to ascend Mount Everest. Now let me ask you, was Tom Whitaker weak? Here's the thing. In a sense, yes, right? He has a weakness. The weakness is you don't have a foot. That's going to make this more difficult. And so what's he do? He gets a prosthetic, a prosthesis. And that allows for him to do this. Now, again, the bigger picture, is Tom Whitaker weak? No, man, this is, <laughs> I mean, good grief. If he is, then good, well, all of us or something, I don't know. But did, did use of a prosthetic limb take away from his achievement? We don't, we don't look at this and go, well, you had this weakness and you had to use a prosthetic, so, I mean, Everest? I don't know. No way. But very often we have this impression of, of walking with God as, oh, I've got to depend on him, which means I'm just kind of a loser. Like, that's for the losers who can't, get, can't figure it out, you know? This is where this idea God helps those who help themselves. In other words, he's not really, they don't really need God's help. He, he's just there, you know, looking for the, the people who can kind of make it on their own. This isn't the picture God has for us. He, he, he's giving us something very different. You, you see, and there's a, a slight difference to even thinking about what Tom Whitaker did and, and what that means for us. Here's the difference. What God wants from us is to ascend a peak that none of us can scale on our own. I mean, you know, others can, can scale Everest. What God wants is for us to ascend a peak that none of us can scale on our own. God's demand for justice, for mercy and humility shows that all of us are disabled when it comes to doing what God wants. This is this recognition we all have to, at some point in our lives, come to that I, I cannot do what God is asking me to do. We've all been guilty, like Israel and Judah. We've all been exploited 
and we've all experienced injustice, but we've all also done the exploiting. We've all been perpetrators of injustice ourselves. And though we've all failed to do what God wants, what God wants for us is to ascend a peak that none of us can scale on our own. What he wants from us is good for us. And so Micah wraps up. The one whose name means who is like God asks this at the end of his book. He says, who is a God like you? Forgiving iniquity and passing over rebellion for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not hold on to his anger forever because he delights in faithful love. He will again have compassion on us. He will vanquish our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show loyalty to Jacob and faithful love to Abraham as you swore to our fathers from days long ago. Though he is a just judge, he is also a good shepherd. And that baby born in Bethlehem is also the king crucified on Calvary. Which means that we find in Jesus that indeed there is no one and nothing like God faithful to do justice and love mercy. No one who, like him, has humbled himself in such a way that in our trusting him, we can ascend a peak we can never reach on our own. And we can walk with him forever. So I want to invite you today, if you never trusted Jesus, man, he's offering you the peak He's offering an eternal life with him in a community that does these things perfectly. Not on this side, but eventually we will know this in all of its glory. And we will know our God in all of his glory. And that God is inviting you to know him, to walk with him. And if you're here, you say, I know that God and I have walked with him. Then know that he wants you to be a doer of justice. He wants you and I to look for opportunities to uphold what is right, to rebuke what is wrong, and to promote restoration. That's the vision God has for you. That's the vision God has for us. And again, what is good, what is he wants from us is what is good for us. So may we live out what he wants. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it is eternal and timely. And I pray that you would help us to heed Micah's message. To do what you want. I pray that what you want would be what we want. And I thank you that even as we consider what you want both from us and for us, your wants are so much better than what we often want for ourselves. Help us to believe that. God, we thank you that there's forgiveness for the ways in which we've not believed that. But continue, Lord, to shape us into this kind of community, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for joining us today. 
We pray that you were encouraged by the message and equipped to take your next step with Jesus. Visit us online at thegrovekc.com for more ways to connect with us. And join us again next week for another podcast from The Grove Church. Have a great day. Thank you.